Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. And I'm Laura. And this week, pull out your crystal balls because your Harry Potter friends will discuss Chapter 16 of Prisoner of Azkaban, Professor Trelawney's prediction, a very big chapter. And to help us with today's discussion, we're very excited about today's guest, Professor Julian Wamble, PhD. We found you on TikTok. Welcome, Julian. What a time. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) What a time indeed. We were following you on social media. A couple of our listeners found your videos on TikTok. Um, They were like, MuggleCast, you gotta have Julian on because you share so many insightful thoughts on Harry Potter. Your username on TikTok is P-R-O-F-W, Prof W. And we wanted to talk about that first with you. Sure. Just to give listeners a quick intro, you have built up a following on TikTok talking about Harry Potter. Um, You teach a college course on Harry Potter titled Harry Potter and the Politics of Social Identity. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, So the class is kind of using Harry Potter as a Trojan horse. Uh, One of my students said that to me once and I was like, oh, yeah, that's actually a really good way (laughs) of thinking about it. To talk about things like identity, which can be kind of dicey to talk about sometimes for people. And so... Uh, What we do is we read the um, latter four books of the series and we dissect them through uh, like seven themes um, like uh, social class, uh, power, the media, law and politics, gender, things like that. And so every week we come in and we just talk about a section of chapters from these books and we I do a little bit. I mean, to call them lectures feels generous. Mostly it's just me ranting. Um, (laughs) And something smart happens to come out every so often. And that's what ends up on TikTok. Wow, that sounds like pretty much what we do in our podcast. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's a match made in heaven. (laughs) And so, yeah. And so the class is a blast to teach and we just have a really good time. Awesome. I think you've left one, one crucial detail out. How do we sign up? Uh, do we have to be oh enrolled in the college? Like, is this is there a, a virtual component? <laughs> that was part of the kind of motivation for posting it on TikTok was because everyone asked that question, particularly millennials who were like, where was this when I was in college? And so I was like, well, what if I just post little, you know, snippets of the class? Um, and then it took off in ways that I never predicted. And so um, I'm trying to think of ways to make it more accessible to people, but it's a bit tricky because GW um, might not love that. You're right. So, uh, yeah. we, uh, <laughs> so, it'd be, so I'm trying to make it work in ways that makes everyone happy and keeps me employed. So, um, <laughs> that's, so more on that later once I figure it out. Yes, keep us posted and we'll definitely let listeners know. Yeah, for sure. Uh, George Washington University, GW. How long have you been a Harry Potter fan? Um, (laughs) are you a a millennial (laughs) i am a millennial so i started reading them when they first came out so okay since the late 90s yep great we're all in the same boat how were you introduced to harry potter then because like we're millennials i was introduced through my fourth grade teacher she read the first book yeah um i got the third book on accident at a scholastic book fair tbt and realized it was the third, went back and got the first. And then I also had a teacher who would during lunch, like invite me in and she would read them. And so that's kind of how I really got into them. But I, yeah, it was all through the book fair. And I was like, there's a kid on a broom. This feels like my vibe. And so (laughs) we just went from there. That's great. Is there a ton of demand at George Washington University for this course? I just have to think there is. Yeah. (laughs) 
How many people are in your class? Just 14, which is part of <gasps> the, yeah, it's like very, very, some might say exclusive, um, but it's not that exclusive. It's just the, the way that the class is set up. So it's mostly, it's mostly seniors, um, 14 students. And so this year coming will be the first year that I teach it twice. So I'm teaching it in the fall and in the spring. Ah, okay. Um, and so normally I just teach it in the spring because I think it's the perfect kind of, you know, senior, we're graduating kind of class. Um, but the demand for it is aggressive, um, which is great. <laughs> but yeah. I feel bad because I can only teach but so many students. And so, yeah, um, yeah but it's, and GW is great because because political science, which is what I teach, um, is the biggest major. They kind of give us carte blanche to teach whatever we want. Uh, and so there's a class on Harry. I teach Harry Potter. One of my other colleagues teaches on Lord of the Rings. Um, so we just kind of get to nerd out, which is a lot of fun. Wow. I should have gone to GW. This is what I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, we have younger all, uh, <laughs> listeners too. Kids, try to get to GW. Then you can take cool courses like this. Honestly, you know, <laughs> it works. Yeah. So you you were teaching this course. Mm -hmm. You decided to start posting your videos on TikTok. That's when it blew up. And, and now you're also posting videos from the car. I see. Yeah, because I realized like, so normally what I would do is I would go into class and I would just kind of prop my phone up against the computer screen and just record. Um, but now I'm not working because we're off for the summer. So I was like, well, how do we keep the conversations going? Also, there are things because of the way the class is structured, there are things that I just can't get into. Um, and so I thought, why not just just post from wherever? And I, I first... The thing about posting on TikTok sometimes is that you can get very caught up in the kind of fanciness of it all because some people really go crazy. Um, and then other people are just like propping their phone up in their car. And I was like, why don't I just do that? And so now it just sits on my steering wheel and I just rant for a bit and I go and edit it. And there you have it. Yeah, I think maybe to people who don't know you and haven't seen your videos before, if they're flipping through and happen to see one of these videos, I think the car also implies you suddenly had a thought that you had to pull over for and get out yeah. on TikTok. You know what I mean? I'm so glad that that's the vibe it's giving because really it's just me in my driveway. <laughs> that's amazing. Going to my studio. It's yeah, just I'm, the car. Be right back. The AC's on low. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. It's like a, a summer edit version of your class, which yeah. is great. Yeah, I really, and it's, it's a little bit more fun because we can talk about things that aren't necessarily kind of within the bounds of the books that we're reading for class. And we can kind of, it lets me also engage with questions that people have posted on other videos. And so I, it kind of just, it's a little bit more casual um, in its kind of presentation. So yeah, I really enjoy it. Cool. So I was thinking with JK Rowling sharing her controversial thoughts on trans people online, have you seen any backlash at school about having a course like yours? Because I'm thinking about how on campuses there are student protests and, and sure. backlash about professors and, and courses and whatnot. Yeah. Do you see any of that? Not for me, but I think it's because I this I started teaching this class in the fall of 2020, which was right around the time that she kind of first espoused these kind of dangerous things. And so I put in my syllabus like a massive, massive paragraph at the very top being like, 
let's unpack this and let's talk about why it is that I'm teaching this class despite or in some ways in spite of, you know, what JK Rowling has put out into the world and trying to be very intentional, both kind of in the syllabus, but also on like the first day of class and throughout the semester about what it is that I'm trying to do and using her books. And so I think that level of transparency has kind of kept me from being seen in a very particular way or because we're not necessarily praising the books in a lot of ways. And a lot of it is just like really heavily, heavily critiquing it um, and also acknowledging the spaces and places in the books where we see some of these beliefs that, you know, as kids, you don't necessarily see kind of jump out in very kind of egregious ways. And so I try to be transparent about that for the sake of avoiding you know, that kind of backlash from people who may not understand exactly what it is that I'm trying to get at in the class. Got it. That's perfect. Yeah, well said. We try to walk the same line here. And it's always really interesting uh, to kind of unpack the subtext of these stories through the lens of understanding who wrote them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That in and of itself is a whole discussion. And it sounds like it's a discussion you have frequently. Oh, yeah. And I think for me, you know, part of the unpacking of identity, right, is recognizing spaces and places where even, you know, intentionally and unintentionally kind of identity based biases kind of jump out. And so it adds an extra layer to the course by thinking about who wrote it and what we know about her beliefs and her own identity and the way that those things are kind of woven throughout the text. Right. And so then that helps us kind of understand, again, this importance of identity and like social spaces. So much of that, too, comes like I think the college age is the perfect time to like it went way over our heads the first time we're reading it. And then the second Mm -hmm. time it's like, wait, what do you mean if a girl doesn't become a mom, she's killed off in Harry Potter? (laughs) And it's like, what? (laughs) Like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean that none of the women characters in these books like one another? Isn't that strange? It's interesting. Yeah. And so it just kind of like it. It allows us to, I think, think a little bit deeper, not only about Harry Potter, but like, you know, where these trends come from. And granted, you know, we have to add a lot of caveats because of when it was written. Um, the 90s were the wild, wild west, you know? Yeah. You yeah. had a wild time to be alive. Uh, and so there's a <laughs> lot of things there that we have to kind of, you know, contextualize. But I still think it, th- it speaks to something larger. And this is why we enjoy doing chapter by chapter on the show again. This is kind of our second time because we're adults now. We're we're looking at these books through a different lens. Yeah. So, well, Julian, um, so excited to have you once again. We'll get to chapter by chapter in just a moment. But first, to our listeners, don't wish you had a time turner. Time is running out to become a patron and order the Patreon exclusive MuggleCast beanie. We're very excited about this year's physical gift. It's a knitted, high quality beanie. The colors were inspired by our album art, and we've got a MuggleCast patch stitched in. I'm seeing Micah tomorrow. I think I'll give him my beanie uh, as we have a record heat wave here in Vegas. I'll make him wear it in like 110 degree weather. I think that should work out. Well, plus, Micah always wears a hat to recording. So if you give him the yes. beanie, he'll just take it back and he'll wear it on next week's episode. Yeah. Join our Patreon at the Slug Club level to receive this year's physical gift. You must sign up and fill out the order form by August First, please, everybody, whether you're a new or old Slug Club patron, you have to fill out the order form. And uh, there's also there's a plethora of other bonus material on our Patreon. So 
check it all out. Patreon.com slash MuggleCast. We couldn't do this without your support. Yeah, and uh, just another note here, we have LeakyCon coming up in just a couple of weeks, and it's a very exciting thing to be back together in person. Speaking of, there's a meetup in downtown Chicago. This is going to be open to the public uh, on Friday, August 4th, you want to say? Yep, Uh, Friday, August 4th uh, at 7 p.m., and we'd like to get a head count for everybody. So if you think you will be in the general Chicagoland area uh, at that time, The meetup will be downtown. There's an RSVP form to fill out. We'll put it in the show notes, but we'd really love to see you. Mike and I don't get together too often in person, and especially with our listeners. I think the last time it happened was in Boston for LeakyCon in 2018. So that gives you an idea how rare and special these meetups are. (laughs) Come on out. It's it's also at a really great location. We can't say what it is yet, but uh, I really like it there. It's one of my favorite Chicago places. So come fill out the RSVP form before you do to make sure that there's room for you. Link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. As well. And uh, and we'll talk about LeakyCon at the end of the show. So now let's get to chapter by chapter. We're discussing chapter 16 of Prisoner of Azkaban, Professor Trelawney's prediction. And we'll start with our seven word summary. Julian, this is a high stress event. I hope you're ready for this. (laughs) Just just warning you now. He's checking his pulse. (laughs) exams consume clairvoyance yeah a teacher would use that word (laughs) that's the best word we've yet okay and i'm gonna provide the connector here shocking revelations executions (laughs) revelations comma executions right yeah. Okay. No, okay. I think this is great. Julian, you really leveled up our seven word summary. It's usually not this. I mean, usually it doesn't involve words like clairvoyance. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to go with prediction, but that just felt not quite on the money. Oh, oh we try not to say a word in the chapter See? in the seven word summary. So boom, that's it. You rocked it. So it is exam time, and in the writing in this chapter, we kind of speed through the various exams to focus on the big one at the end, and of course, Buckbeak's execution. However, at the top of the chapter, Hermione does have exams double booked. Uh, Monday, 9 a.m., she's got two exams. Maybe the clearest sign yet that something is up. So she she might have a time turner, but what could the boy? I mean, they don't even know about time turners at this point. So what could the boys have thought? A professor told her she gets to take one at a different time. I, I think that would be a reasonable excuse to make up. Yeah, I think Ron thinks that she's starting to crack, right? Because we <laughs> we have these other examples of Hermione exhibiting some uncharacteristic behaviors, particularly in the last chapter with punching Malfoy getting up and storming out of divination. So I get the sense that Ron thinks that Hermione is just starting to lose it and as a result has double booked herself for exams. And he's too scared to dig into it with her too. That's the thing. She yeah. she kind of snaps at him. <laughs> and I love the way that they phrase the question. Like, it's no, it's no use asking you this, right? Like, we shouldn't even ask. And she's like, you shouldn't. <laughs> Just let me be Hermione. Yeah. 
The secret works for the whole year because of Hermione's personality. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, like she totally is like not one to divulge, but she'll be stressed out. And then they ask. It just has really worked funnily enough. I mean, on day one, uh, you know, September 1st, you could see them going, no, 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 let's let's unpack your schedule. What's going on here? But they don't. And then it just builds and builds and builds to Hermione. Isn't it kind of weird? Are you sure? And she's like, no. And then throughout the end of the year, and then finally, Ron, I think this is the chapter where Ron would ask. Because I think by the end of the day, we're going to see some time travel shenanigans. So it's like, today's the day they would ask. But because Ron and Hermione have just had this massive fight, he like doesn't pursue it. He like backs off. So it's it's funny how the the issue of Hermione being in two or in some cases three places at once has just eluded explanation. And I feel like it fits her so well in terms of like the stress and the anxiety that she's exhibiting. It's probably... I feel like in their minds, they're like, if anyone could pull this off some way, somehow, it's her. And so why even ask about it? Because if if anyone's doing it, it's Hermione. Yeah. I think uh, Hermione really would overload herself with more coursework. I mean, I, I'm glad that in the future years, she kind of learns her lesson in this book. So we don't, we don't necessarily see her. I mean, she, she doesn't do it again uh, with the time turner. But also, I think in the future, she treats herself a little better. So we'll return to the exams in the second half of today's episode because another big focus here is Buckbeak's hearing and the quote-unquote execution. Mm. Buckbeak's hearing is set and the executioner will be present at the hearing. So he's ready to throw down the axe. Uh, the Could the go moment anyway. it's official. Could go either way. Sure. We don't know. Sure. But the trio is on to what's going on here too, or at least Harry is. It implies that the committee's mind is already made up about Buckbeak's fate. And Harry does come face to face with Fudge on the school grounds prior to the execution and the hearing because he's going to be the witness to Buckbeak's execution. Should Harry have said something to him? And uh, he's just a kid. Fudge is the minister. It's ultimately not going to change change anything, I don't think. But I really would have liked to have seen Harry try and say something to hear. Mr. Courageous could have said something. And Ron wants to say something, too. Uh, but Hermione stops him since Arthur works at the ministry. I'm actually not so sure. Again, Ron's a child. I'm not so sure that this was worth stopping Ron for. Like, I think Hermione actually could have let Ron do it. Is Fudge really going to fire or punish Arthur because his son said something? It really depends on what his son said. That's the thing. <laughs> Hermione wasn't going to take the chance. She's like, Ron, no. And she points out, this man is your dad's boss. Like, yeah, I really wouldn't take the chance. Um, and, and then the other thing that's happening, though, here is, too, Harry and Fudge are on speaking terms. Hermione and Ron have never spoken to him at all, whereas Fudge has shared, like, private rooms with Harry. And this whole serious Black situation has really brought the two of them into this false sense of, like, familiarity. Um, so it's funny because they're described, Ron and Hermione are, as like hangers on, kind of awkwardly uh, bobbing back a little bit. Um, so it, it would have been out of turn for Ron to just come up and be like, this is the wrong thing. What are you guys doing with Lucius Malfoy? You know, whatever he were, were to say is like really kind of would be alarming and strange and not a positive. And I feel like the Weasleys are hanging on by a thread as it is in terms of a number of different things. And we know that we find out later, right, that, you know, Fudge already doesn't view Arthur as particularly kind because of his kind of ideology about muggles. And so, the, you know, it feels 
in this moment, it feels less tenuous. But what we know is that it's a bit more tenuous. And I think Ron doesn't have the best filter. Um, and in this particular moment, he's not um, his best self because he's upset that he did all this work and potentially for naught. And so I think yeah. Hermione might have saved some things because I it's not clear what he would have said. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with that, Julian. I think we can... You know, look at the fact that Arthur has already been in hot water at the ministry Mm -hmm. um, with, Mm. you know, the car, you know, the enchanted car coming to light in Chamber of Secrets, Um, his daughter, although it wasn't her fault, being possessed and causing um, all of the drama in Chamber of Secrets. So he's already, I think, in some hot water early on in the series, on top of the fact that this minister and, you know, the current climate of politics in the wizarding world does not value the work that Arthur does, makes things tenuous for him at best. And to Julian's point, it only gets worse. Um, This is a really great connecting the threads moment to Order of the Phoenix, where Harry is starting to become that undesirable number one um, persona that, you know, the ministry develops for him. And, you know, whereas Fudge might not have known what to say in this book, had Harry challenged him, um, it, it very quickly, you know, the coin turns very quickly. It's a very quick coin flip. As soon as Harry is not serving the ministry narrative, He's no longer valuable. So it just goes to show um, how concerned with optics Fudge is. So I think they do have to kind of play it careful in this moment. Yeah, I was only thinking of it, I guess, from like the perspective of you can't blame Arthur for what his son does when he's they're not. You know, with it might be one thing if Arthur's standing right next to him or something, but you could just Mm. blame Ron's lecture on ron just getting emotional in the moment and 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 freaking out but the, the thing these I'm are very about, good points yeah well like kids at that age though often are what they're saying is what they get from their parents yep, so fair. i think i think just at that age you know like really young it's like what's your political worldview it's whatever your parents are whatever you hear at home and then you're from you're normalized to it so you like bring it up casually yeah, yeah. I mean, Ron's heart is in 100% the right place. And yeah. to your point, he did do all that work. Yeah. Like he really took over from Hermione on this whole appeal. And that's something we can all relate to is being very upset after doing all this work. And they are they've already brought the executioner to the appeal. <laughs> like, Yikes. So later, Hagrid says that Dumbledore tried to convince Fudge that Buckbeak's all right, but uh, they're scared of Lucius. So, of course, that's. Not going to change anything. Um, and Hagrid says, good man, Dumbledore. And the <laughs> only reason I call out this line is I feel like a lot of people cite it from time to time. Good man, Dumbledore. That's, I, sorry, I just got a little emotional seeing that line in print. Julian, I see you shaking your head, though. Uh, you're a Dumbledore critic, aren't you? I absolutely <laughs> am. 100%. Good man, Julian. Good man. <laughs> This feels like the bare minimum. I'm sorry. Like you're Dumbledore. You are Dumbledore. They wanted you to be the minister of magic. You they and and to the point where Fudge is coming to you and asking you for advice as to how to do his job. And you mean to tell me that you couldn't 
like do more than just be like, well, he's not bad. You went and stood before the wisdom gamat to defend Harry Potter when he was like persona non grata and actually were successful. It seems to me that you probably could have done just a bit more to make sure that like this hippogriff didn't, you know, die. That's all I'm saying. The thing that cracks me up is what makes Hagrid say good man Dumbledore is that after failing to persuade the ministry, which would great point there, Julian. I don't know. Was he really trying? How much did he care? Uh, (laughs) After failing to persuade the ministry, he's like, oh, I'll come be with you, Hagrid, when it happens. Wow. Dumbledore is getting off his cushy seat uh, in his tower. It's all to himself with all the little trinkets. He's going to come down and sit with Hagrid while they kill his this his beloved creature. W- what a great man, Dumbledore. Is this is this really worthy? This is the bare minimum. Is this worthy of Hagrid's undying, lifelong love and affection for Dumbledore? Dumbledore's done two nice things for Hagrid this his entire life. One, letting him come on as great groundskeeper. Two, deciding to be with the pet that never should have been sentenced uh, to be executed, like when they're going to chop his head off. Yeah. And it adds an extra layer to all of this when you think about the fact that Dumbledore set Hagrid up for failure in giving him this post of care of magical creatures, but doing nothing to make sure that he was prepared to actually teach the course. We talked about this earlier on in this book, how there's seemingly no standards. Um, There's sort of no requirements at Hogwarts about what subject matter is going to be appropriate for which age groups. And that's exactly why Hagrid ended up showing Buckbeak and the Hippogriffs to third years in the first place, because he didn't have a mentor or somebody to step in and say, hey, this is not going to go very well. Um, Maybe stick with the fifth years for that. And you can introduce your third years to flabberworms. Um, His year would have gone so much better if Dumbledore had mentored him instead of just throwing him in the deep end of being a teacher and saying, well, you know, I've given you this. Um, This is sort of part of my way of making everything that's happened to you over the last 50 years up to you by giving you this post. And now you got to figure out how to make it work. Best of luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And and by the way, sorry about that whole sending you back to Azkaban thing. I'm sure it'll haunt you forever. <laughs> also, sorry for not letting you back into Hogwarts when we realized that you actually were innocent. I and know. so now all of a sudden you just have a third year education and nothing more. But don't worry about it. I'm going to give you this job. It's madness. So just to catch Julian up a little bit, I have to be the Dumbledore apologist on this show because everybody else is so darn critical. I try to offer some balance. We've gotten some emails from people. People have thanked me for my service, <laughs> but it's no it's no use. It's no use. But I'm it's trying. Weird. I'm going I'm going through the inbox. I'm not seeing any of these thank you emails. I, I, I'm, I'm scrolling hard right oh, now. Right. Well, I'm not saying they come in fast and furious, but oh, I did okay, get a text okay, one okay. time. <laughs> No, balance is good. I I know we went really hard in chamber of where is Dumbledore because these attacks were happening on uh, on the students and it it was really, really escalating. And so I thought Dumbledore was largely absent in book two, but we're almost the way through Prisoner of Azkaban. And apart from showing up and having exactly the right idea about how to fix the timeline and all this later, like soon, he mostly has spent this year kind of very absent as well. 
um, just kind of reacting as opposed to being proactive about the serious black situation. Um, there's more there than he possibly could be doing. So it's interesting. I, I, I never would have thought as a kid that Dumbledore was like absent at all or taking a back seat. It's just kind of, Oh, what's he up to? But now that time is passing and we're reading this, and yeah, I think at the pace we are, we really realize like he could really be doing more. This is the bare minimum. Am I allowed to ask a quick question of you all? Because yeah. I've been thinking about this and I'm like, okay, so to what extent do we think that like Dumbledore has some way is able to evade the time loop? Because some of this feels like, I wonder, I, and I think this because I'm like, are you coming down for this thing with Buck B? Because we know that when they go back, he is the reason, like, he's the distraction mm -hmm. while they free Buckbeak. And it seems, like, a little bit too on the nose for him to then be like, all right, Hermione, go back in time. And he just happens to be there. Anyways, it's just a thought that occurred to me. Because I was like, well, are you going down? Because somehow in your, like, weird omniscience, you've been able to kind of subvert this thing. And you know what your role has to be in order to facilitate Buckbeak's kind of liberation. That makes Hagrid's love of Dumbledore even funnier because Dumbledore is yes. not going down to support him emotionally at all. He's just going to preserve the time or like, you know, affect which the feels team. very on brand for Dumbledore yeah. to just be like greater good. We have to do this thing. And so I will just facilitate anyways. I've, uh, that just occurred to me as I was reading. Great it. man, Dumbledore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It is so interesting how Dumbledore really continues to espouse this worldview of pursuing the greater good, even though that is exactly the worldview that ended up uh, with, you know, his entanglement with Grindelwald and his sister dying. He's still walking down the same path again here. And it, whether it's to the detriment of some of the players on the chessboard doesn't really seem to matter. Um, it's more about the the greater arc of the story, it seems. Sure. And and there are times where I think we can argue in Dumbledore's defense that he is doing the right thing overall. Um, but it's it's a lot of gray area. It's like, yes, overall was this the right thing, maybe, but it's also messed up. <laughs> yeah. Those two things can be true. <laughs> You know, Hannah Montana sang the song Nobody's Perfect, and you all need to listen to it after the episode. And a couple people in our Discord listening live right now are saying, Justin said, I am also a Dumbledore apologist. Look for my email, Eric. And Daphne said, me too. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, so I'm doing some sort of service here. All right. <laughs> it's a public service. Not as good as you three are criticizing Dumbledore, but, you know, he is, just to quote Justin, you're trying to save the MF wizarding world. He does save my favorite character's life. At the end of the day, he gets the job done. At what cost, though? At what cost? <laughs> At what That's cost? war. That's war. <laughs> I do just want to call out that um, Kyle in our Discord is pointing out that you have a great point, Julian, about all of this... Um, Dumbledore's interactions with the time loop does just work out a little too perfectly. So it does imply that he has a higher level of awareness of what's going on. And I don't know if that's because he just happened to maybe see future time loop, Harry and Hermione, and put the pieces together very quickly. That That's on brand for Dumbledore, that he would True. very quickly be able to make that connection. His tea leaves today were a time turner. He read 
And he's like, oh, they're going to be shenanigans. But we never get that answer. No, we don't. We don't get that answer because if he is interfering actively with Buckbeak's execution, he must already know somebody's going to be flying away on him. And he doesn't yet, as far as we know, believe or know at all that Sirius Black is innocent. Um, that comes only later after Dumbledore speaks with him while he's imprisoned at Hogwarts. So, like, apparently that's the scene where he gets convinced. So it doesn't make sense that he's running interference now. So later in the chapter, Buckbeak is formally sentenced and the trio wants to be there for it. But with it happening at sunset, they wouldn't be allowed out onto the grounds. So Hermione decides to retrieve the invisibility cloak from under the one-eyed witch statue since it's too risky for Harry to do so after the run-in with Snape. And this this excites Ron, the idea of Hermione going to take the cloak when it's pr- a pretty dangerous situation. And Ron says, Hermione, I don't know what's gotten into you lately. First you hit Malfoy, then you walk out on Professor Trelawney. And then it says Hermione looked rather flattered. So are these some sparks flying? Is Hermione just happy to see somebody recognizing she's a bit of a baddie? Like, what do we think's going on? I think there's some sparks flying already. Little mm. hints. Yeah, mm. I think so. I also think that this moment, particularly Hermione going to get the invisibility cloak, I think it's very characteristic of her, actually. Um Hermione is a character for whom injustice trumps the rules. We see this um, even pretty early on in the series when we think about, um, for example, her uh, hitting Neville with that Petrificus Totalis when they're going to save the Sorcerer's Stone or the Philosopher's Stone, depending on your edition. You know, she knows is that the right thing to do? Not necessarily, but there are bigger fish to fry. We see this from Hermione later on in the series, too, when it comes to things like Spew and when it comes to the formation of Dumbledore's army. I actually think this is another really great connecting the threads moment to Order of the Phoenix, where she advocates for the forming of the DA. We have to remember she's the one who tells Harry, you should teach us because we're not being taught. And she does that in response to Umbridge and the ministry interfering at Hogwarts, which is what's also happening here in Prisoner of Azkaban on a smaller scale, albeit, but still happening. It's like part one of Hermione being a baddie. She's got a streak of vigilante in her, I think, sometimes. (laughs) And that like and I think it jumps. I can't remember the moment in Sorceress Last Philosopher's Stone. But there's a moment where she literally says, like, they're not going to kick me out anytime soon because I've never like no one's ever scored as high as I have on this. Exam, oh, so man. I can, like, <laughs> so she has this. So she is very aware of kind of the power she holds in terms of, you know, how good she is. But I also think that she is not averse to breaking the rules when she when not only when she thinks that, you know, justice isn't being served, but it's like her particular brand of justice, because when she puts Rita Skeeter in that jar. <laughs> or what she does to Marietta Edgecombe. Like she yeah. creates a sense in her mind of like, this is the way that things have to be. And so I think that this is very on brand for her because she has this streak of kind of vigilanteism in her sometimes that jumps out. And I feel like it always takes particularly Ron by surprise because it it feels off brand, but it really is just kind of the way that she constructs what justice looks like for her and and how she then takes it into her own hands. 
I think Ron's surprise about it all says speaks to sparks flying um, because he has a romanticized version of Hermione in his mind. Mm. Um, She's softer to him, I think, or like to his mind. But yeah, it's just a Gryffindor in her (laughs) fighting to get out. Yeah. What house are you, Julian? Slytherin. Oh, my God. You're the nicest Slytherin we've ever met. Sorry, Andrew. uh, (laughs) Okay, fine. I'm leaving. No, 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 no. There are good Slytherins. We have a little joke on this panel that we very rarely have Gryffindors on. Yeah. Uh, because nobody on the show panel is a Gryffindor. <laughs> so we're always very surprised when we get a guest who is. <laughs> I think in my classes, I very rarely have Gryffindors. I think this last semester I had probably the most I've ever had. Um, but normally, yeah, they're not very uh, well represented. I was a Gryffindor in the night went through a breakup and I converted the Slytherin. I just was like new, new life, new me. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. sometimes it happens. There are two sides of the same coin, honestly. Like, yes. Uh, so we'll get to the ax falling in a little while since it ties into Pettigrew. Uh, let's discuss professor Trelawney's exam. So she sees the students one by one and asks them to gaze into a crystal ball and uh, report what they see. Parvati's exam was a success. Quote, Trelawney says, I've got all the makings of a true seer. I saw loads of stuff. Now, I wonder, did Trelawney go easy on her since Parvati has been, it's been established at this point, she fawns over Trelawney. Um, So is Trelawney going easy on her? What is going on here? Is Parvati actually seeing the future? Um, is she going to be a seer one day? Or did she make it all up and put on a really convincing performance to, to impress Trelawney? Uh, I don't know, man. It just seems like maybe there's something going on. I, here's the question. Would Trelawney recognize a seer if one was right in front of her? Um Which I think is really, you just have to, seeing Harry play the game and do this, you just have to know a little bit about gossip at Hogwarts, I think, and it gets you by. Um, Because Harry wins over Trelawney, mostly. And Parvati would be one of the one people that's, like, really the most into it and would would have, like, an intuition, not necessarily innately, but through practice. If anybody has, like, picked up anything from these classes that would allow them to actually do what they're studying, it's Parvati or Lavender. Julian, I'm curious for your perspective on this as a professor. Sure. Um, (laughs) I think this exam is awful. Partially because, (laughs) and I was thinking about it as I was reading, I said, it's so subjective. There's no objective way to determine, you know, Mm -hmm. who's doing well and who's not doing well, which I think speaks to this idea of, you know, being able to grant favoritism to Pavardi in ways that, you know, you don't necessarily have to do for other students because, There's, you know, ostensibly, if you're looking into the crystal ball, like Professor Trelawney can't see what Pavardi sees. So she can't confirm or deny anything. And so because of the lack of objectivity in terms of how you can assess them. Yeah, it's like, you know, if I like you or I believe you like me, then my ability to grade you is, you know, based off of, of that alone. And or if you are giving me some warped sense of reality that I want to hear, which is what Harry does, then I can, again, kind of just say that's exactly what, you know, you're predicting. Because there's nothing about the exam that 
allows her to compare across students, there's no way to be right or wrong. It is just whatever she wants it to be. It's whether she likes you or not. Yeah. I mean, Trelawney's, she's a grifter, really. Like, she's a two-trick pony. She's right in a couple of big ways a couple of times. But outside of that, uh, we don't really see that level of validity (laughs) in her other predictions. So I I think that goes straight to what Julian is saying about her just leaning into favoritism because there's no way, again, to prove or disprove what people are saying on this exam. Let's extend the kindness we give to Hagrid to Trelawney here. (laughs) Trelawney is a product of what Dumbledore has made her. Mm -hmm. The only reason she's in this position at all is because Dumbledore wants her at Hogwarts and because like to protect her for the one prophecy that she did make. She's because she doesn't really overtly have the skill uh, that she's been forced to teach. She really had very little choice in becoming the kind of teacher that she is. Uh, She ultimately is more about instructing than doing but because she can't do, well, those who can't do teach. Uh, Trelawney, uh-huh. you know, really like, it's just like, <laughs> hey, Yikes. this is how, this is how, that's a saying, that's a common expression. <laughs> but you don't, what you don't have to do is what Trelawney leans into, which is because she still chooses to pretend that she really can do the things that she's teaching, she then gets into the theatrics that we've talked all this book, uh, damages Harry's psyche, or, or, or all the rest of the students, too, to keep hearing that somebody in your class is doomed. Uh, and she still goes on about this. And it's like, she didn't have to make that choice, but Dumbledore put her here and subjected her to all these, like, subjected all the students to her and throughout years now. And, and I think that all we're seeing is this late-stage result of Trelawney, a clear fraud on most days, really just being given this opportunity that she never qualified for. It's also fascinating because I don't know how you teach divination. It seems like something (laughs) that's like inherent. And like, you know, when we think of the names that, you know, J.K. Rowling puts in for Sybil and um, her great-grandmother Cassandra, right? Like Those are people who were like in Greek mythology blessed by Apollo. And so there's not, it's not a taught skill. It's like something you either have or you don't. And so the idea of this as a course, like broadly construed, feels so off because it's like you actually can't teach this. It seems like there are people who just have it or you don't. And so it it feels like they're setting up students for failure regardless of who the teacher is because it's just, why are you teaching something that you either are you either have the ability to do or you don't. It it seems weird. Right. Hey, I compare this to uh, what Tonks can do, metamorphagists, yeah. right? Some are born metamorphagists, I think she says, and I think she's one of them. Teddy definitely is. Um, but you can learn to do it. It just takes a lot of time and expertise uh, as like a student to learn how to do it. So I think of that as like the Sears. There are people who have the true gift, but I think there is also a slightly lesser version of divination where you can work a crystal ball or tarot or tap into the energies and that kind of a thing. And so the problem is Trelawney is pretending that everyone can do the first part, but, but it's really only the second part, but that Mm. that's kind of the difference here is she's failing to distinguish because she can only, if she were good, could do the second part. 
like yeah. on command. And she's not doing a great job of teaching the theoretical side of this. I mean, when it comes to the applied side of divination, I'm with Julian. I think there's going to be a ceiling to what people are going to be able to do most of the time. But this subject could be really useful if given a lot of theoretical foundations so that the students at least could understand and appreciate the art of divination. Because as we established in last week's episode, it's just as important as all of the other subjects they're learning. It's just Trelawney's not a good teacher. And to that point, I actually had a question for y'all, and I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but it feels relevant to the conversation we're having. Do we ever get any other examples of seers, whether in Harry Potter or sort of in extended lore, where we learn the frequency of the predictions they make? Because something that occurs to me about Trelawney is she has these two predictions that she makes that end up being very right. And then there's really nothing else that she does. I mean, there's some things that are maybe debatable, but they're definitely smaller examples. Um, Is it just possible that maybe a seer is only going to make a handful of big predictions over the course of their life? And if that's the case, is Trelawney leaning into this because she feels the pressure to perform as a seer all the time? When maybe it's that's not even the correct expectation. Maybe the expectation is the seer is only going to do this four or five times over the course of yeah. their life. Yeah, I don't know if to we've seen any other examples. Questions, right, I don't know, but I guess I would counter with what's the typical accuracy rate of a seer? Because Trelawney's just throwing out whatever pops into her brain, whereas a better seer might only make these predictions when they have something truly authentic to say. Mm-hmm. So I, I I get the impression Trelawney somebody who, like you're saying, Laura, just looking to impress, wants to kind of throw out whatever pops into her brain just to show off that she has this ability. She's not predicting responsibly. Like you need, yeah. you don't need to show off just Less is more sometimes. I'm just imagining like an alcohol commercial predict responsibly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but 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 here's the other question. Do all other seers go into a trance when they do a real prophecy? Because the, there's this great irony that Trelawney doesn't ever know when she she doesn't know that she did the first prophecy. And she certainly doesn't know this one. Uh, right. Dumbledore never tells her. So. And that's why she's looking to do these other predictions that she can remember so she can convince herself she's the real deal. Yeah, because because if no other seer does it while conscious either, then no one would ever know that they were seers unless somebody told them. But also, like, she, you can't expect, you can't force a prophecy. I don't know. The whole size of the Department of Prophecy in the Department of Mysteries tells me there's more of these people and they do them substantially more often. Uh, than we see Trelawney do, but it's there's a lot of questions as far as what her expectations are in this role, why she is the way she is. I go back to Dumbledore. I think that like she, because like her apparently her great great grandmother was like a big to do, and I feel like a lot of what she's doing is playing, like she's cosplaying her great great grandmother and thinking like this is what she used to do, and so this is the kind of air of mystique that I'm gonna have. And and I think it's interesting because really what she does is she just is doing like deductive reasoning 
She's like, oh, yeah. you saw a hippogriff? Well, the people are here, so clearly it's going to die. <laughs> so, you know, she just kind of like, she's, I mean, if I'm going to give her any credit, I'll give her credit about how, observe, like, she observes things very well. Like, she knows about Neville. She knows he's a klutz. So at the beginning of class, she can say, don't break that. Because, un- like, <laughs> and then she makes him nervous, and then he does it, right? And so it feels like, oh, she's really done a thing. But really, she's just like, no, I, I know this person's like personality type and i think that part of her like con is how you know good at studying like human and like human behavior and she just is able to call it out but i think the air that she puts about herself i would credit it probably to you know the other person in her family who was apparently like legit and everyone kind of knew and that she's just adopted this kind of air about herself to pass it off and then she just uses her really good kind of observation skills as a way to make people think things that are true, which I think like there are some people, you know, on the internet now who do the very same thing. Mm, Um, And I think she's very good at at doing that. Yeah. She's definitely the type of person who would record a TikTok that would come up in my algorithm saying I manifested that this video was going to turn up in the algorithms of people who needed it. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And then like, if you, oh, if if you are watching this right now, you need to listen to what I'm saying. That is absolutely Trelawney. That's her. (laughs) It's just, I just had a weird thought, which is last year we dealt with Lockhart, who was this big old fraud. And this year we deal with Trelawney. Next year we deal with Moody. What's this theme of like fraud teachers? (laughs) Just frauds on frauds. Frauds on frauds. Well, speaking of being fraudulent, we can just get through Ron and Harry's performances real quick. Uh, Ron didn't do well. He couldn't see a thing he says, so he made some stuff up, and uh, he thinks Trelawney was not convinced. And then Harry isn't having luck with gazing into the ball either, so he makes up that he sees Buckbeak surviving the execution and flying away. Not wrong. And then Trelawney calls the prediction a little disappointing (laughs) because it's not the outcome she wanted for Buckbeak or expected, I guess. Yeah, it's the same thing, though, right? Like, I think this speak this tells us a bit more about how Trelawney actually operates, because what Harry does is he again, he uses something that is real and true in the moment. And then he just kind of extrapolates out what he believes is going to happen. And then with like a tinge of what he wants to happen. And then that's his prediction. And I think the fact that she was on board until he's like, no, he's flying away. And she's like, well, that's clearly false tells us everything we need to know about how it is that she derives her own predictions. Because if he had said he dies, she would have said, oh, you have the gift. And it's like that, because that's what you do. (laughs) Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really wish we could have known what Ron made up, because these are the kinds of moments um, from Ron that tend to be unintentionally prophetic. This is just one of those uh, one of those pieces of lore that is lost to time. We'll we never don't know. know. Yeah. I question if Harry would have done as well to impress Trelawney if she knew that he and Hagrid were like close friends. Um, yeah. Because I think because this is this is clearly one of those topics that that Trelawney prides herself on knowing is going on in the school, like school gossip, and doesn't assume any students, even the ones involved in the hippogriff incident would be privy to the love that the execution is happening today, that there's a hippogriff involved. Like, I think that she's just so 
privileged in thinking like she's the only one that when Harry brings up, oh, a, a, a hippogriff. Oh, you, you remember that man, the gameskeeper at this school? Well, you know, his his hippogriff is on trial today. And it's like Harry like knows this intimately, but she like doesn't have that connection. So he can just BS it. And you're exactly right. Like the second she turns and is like, well, that didn't happen. She is when it divorces like with what her established reality is. I want to know what her uh, interpretation of Harry's exam was after the events of this book. Like, does she sort of uh, roll back her previous statement that Harry's prediction was a bit disappointing and start telling other teachers like, oh, yes, he he (laughs) predicted this and. I, you know, having the the eye myself, I knew that was going to happen, <laughs> you know. She strikes me as the type of person who would be frustrated that she was wrong in her assessment of Harry's prediction and thus is just like not thinking about it at all. Like, I, no, there's no way he was actually. Yeah, I think gifted. she'd steal it. <laughs> I think she would be like, I had a prediction in the tower that Buckbeak would fly away. And Harry Potter just happened to be there. But right. really, it was me. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe all of these exams are Trelawney's way at the end of the year of scooping up real prophecies that she can then go back to later. Like, if she's <laughs> like trained that. her students to be better than her. And then she just spouts out like... These, uh, whatever she heard this time, if still relevant at the beginning of next year, will be the first prediction she makes next year to a class. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, she's but harvesting like, prophecies. Yeah, these are her, like, this is how she gets to know who they are as people. So then she can, like, leverage it later on and be like, oh, yeah, like, uh, that's how she does it. This is her character study. Yeah, because as we established a few minutes ago, this exam is kind of useless for the students if they're not mm-hmm. gifted with the inner eye. Let's get to the prediction itself. So as Harry's walking out of the exam, which is pretty important, we'll circle back to that in a moment, Trelawney goes rigid and drops a prediction in a harsh voice quite unlike her own. Now I'm going to do this impression uh, because I've done it before. So Julian, I apologize for what you're about to hear. I'm, I'm excited. It will happen tonight. The Dark Lord lies alone and friendless, abandoned by his followers. His servant has been chained these 12 years. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will break free and set out to rejoin his master. This hurts my voice. Have so some much. water. <laughs> the Dark Lord will rise again with his servant's aid, greater and more terrible than ever before. Tonight, before midnight, the servant will set out to rejoin his master. So she enters this <laughs> trance, snaps back into reality, apologizes to Harry, and she says, the heat of the day. You know, I drifted off for a moment. And she doesn't know. She's just made this prediction. And Harry says, hey, this just happened. And she says she doesn't believe that she would make the prediction that Harry is describing. She tells him, she tells him, you must have dozed off too. Can, can, like, can, like the same time, both people in the room drift off because she doesn't believe it's possible. Unbelievable. (laughs) Why does Trelawney think she couldn't predict such a thing? (laughs) Because of Dumbledore. Because of Dumbledore. (laughs) He literally did not tell her the first time this happened. He thought it was safer to that she does not know. And so she never knew. Here's the thing. A lot of what Trelawney does 
including the theatrics, comes from a place of inner desperation and imposter or uh, low self-esteem. She doesn't believe that she's authentic, uh, which she would do if Dumbledore had told her that. So this whole thing again comes back to Dumbledore because she can't believe that she would ever be the person to do this. I also think that there's like a wizarding world. There's such a massive fear of the possibility that Voldemort will come back that like, and it's so, I think one of the things that a lot of people comment in my videos is that, you know, the whole wizarding world at this point in time is so traumatized by Voldemort that they just, that no one talks about it. And I think that part of her not wanting it to be something that she predicted is also born out of just the sheer fear of, if I said that, you know, what does this mean for all of us? What does it mean for me? I think that there's a kind of emotional kind of, um, like she's trying, she doesn't want to acknowledge the possibility of that, of that happening and that being true. It's very much like Fudge in Order of the Phoenix, right? Where he, he just doesn't want to believe it. And I think that that's something that everyone in the wizarding world has, where it's just this like, let's just not acknowledge the fact that this is a possibility. And I think that that's part of right. her motivation. That's a great point because Trelawney says to Harry, the Dark Lord? Oh, silly me. That's right. completely out of there. You know, the Dark Voldemort coming back is really like the COVID-19 of the Harry Potter books. Everyone wants <laughs> to believe it's over. They got yep. comfortable believing that it's gone forever, that it's not really still out there. And that actually ends up facilitating the return in huge key ways. Ne the next book, mostly. Order of the yeah. Phoenix is definitely there, but Goblet especially, like Bertha Jorkin's disappearance, we just see everybody completely just like discredit the like the very real signs of the threat. Yeah. So yeah, starts here with Trelawney, I think. Yeah. It is so interesting to think about the difference with which wizards approach divination um, to how centaurs approach divination. It very much feels like to Julian's point that there's this element of belief that they have control over mm, the direction yeah, of yeah, the yeah. universe. As long as they don't acknowledge it, as long as they don't believe it, they can control what does and doesn't happen. Whereas the centaurs are like, we're taking a 30,000 foot scope of the universe and like the cosmic arc of everything and we can't control it. So we don't really, we, we're not sort of prescribing a moral value to what's happening. This is just what's happening. Yeah, and they, it, which I mean, because they're the centaurs are all about not actively engaging, trying to change anything, right? Like we we won't tell you what we know, um, and I think that I I really love this idea of like because it's also very on brand for the wizarding world of like, well, if magic is the way that we can just control everything, then why can't why would the future be any different? And we literally see them do that with the time turners, right? It's literally the exact thing that they ultimately do, which is leverage you know their power and magic as a way to affect what happens and so it's fascinating that the of the way that they then view the future because that's because they, they just they're like oh well we can just change it if we don't like it yeah oh that's such a great connection to the time turners so i mentioned that trelawney makes this prediction as harry's walking out of the exam and what's so interesting is that when Trelawney made her prediction in front of Dumbledore all those years ago, he was walking out of the bar after interviewing Trelawney, and Dumbledore was not impressed. 
And um, I find it interesting that in both these occasions, Harry and Dumbledore both walking away. And that's when Trelawney kicks in, if you will. And I had kind of like a crackpot theory about this. Like she's subconsciously looking to impress them uh, while she still can. So this triggers something in her, triggers an accurate prediction. You know, in the case of Dumbledore, Trelawney wanted the job. And then in the case of Harry, she just wanted Harry to believe she's the real deal. Mm -hmm. Is that what's going on? This is a brilliant connection. This is a great, wonderful comparison and connection between the two. Thanks. (laughs) I I think it does come. Maybe that's what triggers the prophecy is this place of insecurity. If Trelawney spent more of her conscious uh, time being actually in tune with the forces or listening to the forces. And and I think I think I think the power is uh, insecurity activated. If we yeah. go there. So so the <laughs> fact that she doesn't make predictions more more often is because she is like over trying is not open. Her inner eye is the farthest thing from open unless she's in this moment of deep vulnerability, uh, which she was when she needed the job those many years ago. And she is now with Harry. It's interesting, too, because she really secludes herself from other people. We see that she never leaves her tower, really. And this might be why we don't see more of this. She's uncomfortable being around other people and sort of being in this performative space all the time. Perhaps if she was exposed to people more frequently, we might see this insecurity uh, trigger activate more and see more truthful predictions coming from her. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like historically, like in mythology, right? Like, like seers are just empty vessels for whatever higher power divinity to kind of flow through. And so you imagine that one's ego has to be out of the way in order to kind of empty the vessel. And so in these moments of insecurity where she's kind of like, oh, I actually am not good at this. You can imagine that that would be the moment where like, you know, in mythology, that's when someone would come and like tap in and say, you know, here's a prophecy because you kind of have to be this empty vessel um, and kind of get out of your own way. And you could imagine insecurity kind of being a trigger for those type of things. Yeah. I will say the one thing that I do like about the prophecy is if you're not on the serious black is good train, uh, if you're not clued into that at this point, which I was not when I first read it, this prophecy still reads like Sirius could be the one that's escaping, especially because of the phrases like imprisoned after 12 years. Who do we know? That's like, it's literally like the prisoner of Azkaban is the name of the book. So going on, um, it's only when you read it back that you realize it could still mean both of them. It could mean Peter Pettigrew or Sirius Black. Um, and I just I just like the versatility and flexibility. It's a requirement of the writing, but it's actually written in a way where if you think it's serious, it'll be serious. If you think it's Peter, it'll be Peter. Yeah. Well, speaking of Peter, the chapter ends with Hermione discovering that's oh, discovering Scabbers hiding in Hagrid's milk jug. And Ron <laughs> pockets him, but Scabbers is going crazy trying to get out. And at the same time, the trio scrambles back up to the castle because uh, Hermione doesn't want to witness Buckbeak being executed and Axe falls in the background. As the trio is escaping the hut, Harry says he feels strangely unreal and even more so when he saw, saw Buckbeak a few yards away. So this kind of reminded me of having an out-of-body experience because of an imminent death or you get like shocking news that you can't process and your brain just enters this other state where you're like, whole, like your whole world has suddenly changed. 
Is this what's going on here? And I know, I think, Eric, you had or somebody had a really yeah, Eric, you had a really good point about maybe what's actually going on. If not, there's this. a very fun theory. But I think what you're doing is what you're saying is the most likely and the most realistic. Harry is just witnessing firsthand injustice. You hear about it in the hypothetical. Um, you know, there's definitely been injustices that he's been privy to Dobby and some other things throughout the years. But this is the first time where he and his friends have been actively involved. They were there when the incident occurred with Draco. They have had nothing but uh, piss Aunt Draco to deal with all year. And yet the deck is stacked so against Hagrid, their dear friend and Buckbeak, that they literally have an axe come down and they assume that Buckbeak has been beheaded. This is this would take me out of it, too. You just can't believe that after all the work, how unfair it is. And there's always a point in in growing up where something like this happens. And you're just like, the world is not a nice, shiny place, really, all the time. And I think that's what's happening is Harry's just like experiencing that. We watch him experience it in real time. Yeah, I think he's disassociating. I think he's just Mm. like completely, I feel like his brain is trying to protect itself, not only from just the reality of how unjust the world can be, but also just the brutality of what's going to happen to Buckbeak. You know, and I think he, like, I feel like his brain is like, yeah, you need to like, we're going to take a step back, literally, uh, in order to protect you from this kind of from this moment which i think also happens in a lot of times where it's like sometimes you just feel like i'm outside of myself because this is too much and i can't necessarily handle it um and i feel like that's i feel like he's just having a very like disassociative moment where he's trying to his brain is literally trying to protect him from the reality of what's happening so here's an alternate theory that i will propose now harry's feeling slightly unreal uh here or strangely unreal and I'm wondering if it's because the universe currently now has two of Harry in here. This is around the time of day that Harry becomes two Harrys, that the time loop starts. Mm-hmm. The time loop starts uh, a bit before the axe comes down on Beaky. So uh, what if there is a finite amount of energy to split between two beings and the fact that Harry feels out of it is his brain protecting him, but is also somebody else is sharing his essence. Somebody else is sharing his energy. Yeah. I love this. Me too. <laughs> I do too. You would, you would think yeah. that one of the, once you're just getting started with time turning, you're going to feel, you could feel a little different. And then it's you're jet lag. Yeah. Yeah. Of sort, of a sort. But I wonder if this also, if you extrapolate it out, Hermione has been dealing with this feeling all year. What if, what if, what if the more of you that there are, so like maybe because she's young and resilient, she's been able to do this all year. But what if when there are duplicates of you, if you go back in time and there's more than one of you, what if it is like a shared energy thing? And that explains why Hermione has been so exhausted. Maybe that's been wearing on her too. And I think even, I think there's ways to bring this together, right? Because it's like also your brain, because they talk about it a lot, like, what if you saw yourself, you'd think you'd gone mad. And so like, what if like, part of the kind of energy, kind of sharing is also, I guess, the Harry that we are in this moment, is his brain is like, yeah, we, I can't even allow you to think this is a possibility. So not only am I protecting you from, you know, what's happening to Buckbeak, but also the reality that there's another you running around here, like, we have to keep you grounded in this place. 
And so that, yeah, that's a lot. If, if Hermione was navigating all of that, it's easy to understand like why things were falling apart for her because that's just a lot to have to navigate at 13. Yeah. It's so interesting given the conversation we had last week about energy levels and time turning and how we connected it to our physics of Harry Potter episode. I mean, the, the laws of physics would dictate that your energy levels don't suddenly just double to accommodate two versions of yourself running around. So I think it could absolutely be a mixture of the trauma and the shock of what Harry's seeing in this moment, but also him having to split his energy in half to accommodate the thing that his his future self is doing as well. Here's the other reason I like it. You're supposed to only go back short distances. Um, this is kind of because the time turner works hourly. You'd have to turn it a real long time like they do in Cursed Child. It takes up 30 minutes of the show just going back, you know, years. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the the whole idea that you're pretty much limited to a period of time during which you were alive uh, to use the time turner also speaks to this energy being divvied up. Maybe what allows you to transport back in time, this sort of duplication does draw on your own life force to do it in a really interesting way. Maybe there's that additional reason for why you really shouldn't go back long distances in time because it'll be more draining somehow. And depending on the magic you use when you go back, right? Like we know that Harry then has to go and conjure up a massive Patronus. And you can imagine like we, and we know that that takes a ton of power out of him. And so when you are like living in these kind of dual planes simultaneously and one of one version of yourself is doing massive amounts of magic, you can imagine like I, it's and, and we know then it takes up so much magic that the kind of the first time around when he conjures the Patronus or he tries to conjure not even the massive one he does later. Yeah. Right. It yeah. takes it all out of him. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that. Eric, you did have one odd and end. Yeah, we try and get uh, at least one odd and end here since it's the segment. But uh, actually, Meg pointed this one out. At the end, they're going down. Harry and Hermione and Ron have the invisibility cloak to go see Hagrid. It says uh, in the book, they sculpt in an empty chamber off the entrance hall, listening until they were sure it was deserted. They heard a last pair of people hurrying across the hall and a door slamming. Hermione poked her head around the door. Okay, she whispered. No one there cloak on that last pair of people that are running across the uh, great hall and or the entrance hall and closing a door are, in fact, future Hermione and Harry going into the broom cupboard Uh, will blow your mind. We are now officially in the time loop. Love it. Such a good catch. Thank you, man. Yeah. Yeah. I would have missed that. I did miss that. <laughs> it's so easy to miss. It's designed to be missed. This is why I like, I mean, the power of writing. Wow. Right. It's just really cool. So that's it for the chapter. And next week, chapter 17, Cat, Rat, and Dog. That's where Trelawney's prediction will start coming true. Let's now hand out our MVP of the week awards. I'm going to give it to my girl Trelawney for reminding us why Parvati fangirls over her and for giving me an opportunity to use my Trelawney voice. Yeah, you're definitely going to have to drink some hot tea with honey after that. I get the sense that you're very hoarse after that. Thank (laughs) you. Um, on a related note, I'm going to give mine to Scattergru, as he is affectionately known on this show, for giving Trelawney a real prediction to make for once. (laughs) 
<laughs> is that why she hasn't given any? There's just not enough things going on. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give mine to Dumbledore. We talked about it earlier. He does the bare minimum and still wins Hagrid's lifelong support and friendship. For wow. some reason. You, you tricked this man, sir. <laughs> it's masterful. He's the real scam artist. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give mine to Hagrid because he, in the midst of all of this kind of madness, was still wanting to protect the, the trio and have them get out despite kind of how distraught he was. And I think like, you know, that's amazing because I couldn't have done it. Yeah. Oh yeah, we love Hagrid. Good man, Hagrid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listeners, if you have any feedback about today's episode or the chapters ahead, you can send an owl to mugglecast at gmail.com or you can use the contact form on mugglecast.com. You can also send a voice message. Just record it using the voice memo app on your phone and then email us that file. Or you can use our phone number, which is 19203Muggle. That's 19203684453. And now it's time for our weekly Harry Potter trivia game, Quizitch. Last week's question, what is the first line of Professor Trelawney's Pettigrew prophecy? And it's separated in the book in blocks of text, so it's a little bit of a trick question. Uh, But the first line technically that was accepted this week is, it will happen tonight. Sorry, you're better at it. Mine sounds like Voldemort. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Uh, So... Is that a Muppet I just heard? That was I was trying to do Voldemort's. Yeah, Voldemort's. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave I'm gonna leave the voices to you, Andrew. Sorry okay, for calling the, it a Muppet. The, the, <laughs> to be fair, movie Voldemort kind of does sound like a Muppet. So a little bit, a little bit. Um, okay, so uh, yes, this has kind of become our weekly quiz segment. It's kind of become the uh, funny names club. So here are all the usernames that won, uh, or some of the usernames. Uh, that submitted the correct answer of it will happen tonight. We got Beaky for Life, Can You Spare a Buckbeak, George Weasley's Surviving Ear, Grimly Fiendish, Hermione Granger's <laughs> Impossible Timetable, page 52 of Ron's copy of Advanced Potion Making, Pettigrew's Lost Finger, Pig the Owl Ron's Better Pet, Potty Lurves Looney, So From Now On, If I Want My Name to Be Read, It Has to Be Something Clever and Funny, question mark. (laughs) SPT to HJP, The Emotional Range of a Teaspoon, and Yeah Yeah from the Sand Lot. Here's next week's question. What spell does Sirius Black use on Harry and Hermione? That's right. They get hit with a spell from this escaped prisoner. Submit your answer to us on the Quizich form on MuggleCast.com slash Quizich or click on Quizich from the main nav. And uh, just another reminder that Micah and I will be at LeakyCon in 2023 with Chloe. There will be a live MuggleCast as well as a bunch of other panels that we're on and we will be uh, talking about that in a very short amount of time. But if you're still looking to sign up and haven't yet, you can actually get $10 off your order using code MUGGLE. And we're just very excited to be back in person at a Harry Potter con in August. It'll be really, really wonderful. So definitely come on out and remember to fill out the RSVP form if you'd like to come to the meetup on Friday, August 4th. 
we are looking to finalize those details very soon. A couple other reminders before we wrap up. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode and leave us a review. Also, follow us on social media. We're MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Threads. Follow us on Threads. Threads. <laughs> and we have to talk about Julian. Thank you so much for coming oh. on today. You were amazing. Oh, thank you all so much for having me. This was too much fun. Awesome. Glad you had a good time. Where can we find you online? Oh, mostly just on TikTok at Prof WPROFW. Um, yeah, we have a good time there too. You do. You do. Everyone, definitely follow him, sharing great thoughts on Harry Potter. Watch, I meant to say this earlier, watching your videos that you filmed in class was yeah. kind of like surreal to me because I'm like, oh, those students are so lucky just being in a I classroom know. discussing Harry Potter. I wanted that so bad. I'm going to take a clip of this and show them that and be like, just so you know how lucky you are. No. <laughs> Please, I mean, you could make this whole episode like assigned viewing, honestly. I should, honestly. Ooh. And because they have they, one of their assignments is to make a podcast where they like have to do the thing. And so I oh. might just be like, watch this and then kind of mimic it. Yeah, that's yeah, one of the here's assignments. your example. Yeah. Well, if we can ever help with that, like in any way, I don't know, yeah. giving you tips for how they can record or whatever, hit yeah, us up. We'd be... I will do it. That would be amazing. Yeah. But I definitely will use this episode as a kind of example for them and be like, this is how you can do this. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, thanks again, Julian. Thank uh, you. Listeners, once again, please follow him on TikTok and we'll have a link in the show notes as well. And good luck if you go to George Washington University. Good luck getting into these classes with 14 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people. <Yeah. chosen. laughs> All right. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Thanks everybody for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Laura. And I'm Julian. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye. Bye.